Welcome to Furtherfield's News From Where We Are podcast, the Radical Friendship series. News From Where We Are is a cultural podcast grounded in the news from where we are. We may be experiencing all kinds of restrictions on our lives due to the pandemic, but we still have access to thriving networked cultures from around the world. And this podcast is dedicated to the collaborative, imaginative fieldwork of artists, techies and activists, informing how we organise, imagine and build solidarity, good health and post-capitalist realities, working together and supporting others to do the same. In 2021, we celebrate 25 years of radical friendship at Verberfield. We revisit and open up conversations with some of the fascinating and radical people we have worked and collaborated with through the years, looking at conflicts, connections and common threads, tactics and insights of the working lives and existences of this dynamic culture of artists, techies, activists, critical thinkers and outsiders who've worked with the internet, digital networks and post-digital contexts. They're changing culture, their lives and the lives of their communities. We are interested in unearthing an ecological economy, relational understanding and lived lives alongside survival strategies, critical thinking and grassroots systems of peer and individual engagement as part of the art context. We are examining power and how lives get lived on whose terms. For this podcast, I'm interviewing artist Kate Southworth about her work with art, technology and witchcraft, an Irish-British artist living in Cornwall, UK. Filippo Florenzin is interviewing artist and independent Mexican curator Doreen Rios founder of Antimateria, an online platform dedicated to the research and exhibition of Latin American digital art. Ruth Catlow reads to us her Ford for the Disco Manifesto by Stacco Troncoso and Anne-Marie Utretel. We have Experimental Avant Folk by artists Alan Sondheim and Azure Carter from their latest excellent album, plague song. We also have Stuart Home, the radically inauthentic communist sex witch and fed up author, reading snippets from his recent book Denizen of the Dead published by Cripplegate Books. And we have other sound treats fluidly appearing in between the guests' contributions. So first up, we have Filippo Forenzin interviewing artist and independent Mexican curator Doreen Rios. Hello, everybody. Today I'm with an independent curator whose work focuses on curatorial practices and research, specializing in digital cultures and new media practices. She is the founder of Antimateria, an online platform dedicated to the research and exhibition of Latin American digital art, 
which aims to create international exchanges between artists, curators, researchers, and promoters interested in digital practices. So welcome, Doreen Rios. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hi, Filippo. I'm good. Thanks. Thank you for having me here. Um, I'm, I'm also sure that this is going to be fun and exciting. It's always nice to hear your voice as well. That's always, you know, I always like to, to keep it fun. So let's see, let's see how it goes. Um, I wonder uh, if you could tell more about Antimateria in terms of community and network of contacts. Um, what was the situation for New Media Arte in Mexico when you opened the platform in 2015? Was it difficult to get in touch with local artists and connect with the existing art platforms? I think that when Antimateria started, it basically started because I wanted to write about digital art and I was working at an arts magazine at the time. And uh, whenever I, you know, I proposed the idea of, oh, let's write about electronic arts or media mm -hmm. arts or, you know, what's going on in terms of uh, these kind of practices in Mexico, my, mm -hmm. uh, my former boss, he would be like, oh, but there's no information about it. Where can we find this? Like there, there are no, uh, there is no such thing as an art scene that's interested in, in mm -hmm. digital practices in Mexico. And mm -hmm. I was very much aware that it was, you know, something that happened and also, you know, something that had been happening for quite some time. So it basically started as a, as a research um, information platform. I think it wasn't hard for me to get a, um, to the artist in terms of accessibility uh, from mm -hmm. their behalf. I would say that the digital arts community, at least in, in Mexico, and to be fair, what I have experienced in other places as well, tends to be a very open community and always happy to, you know, uh, to talk and to share about, you know, their work and their experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's also something that was very nice to encounter because I am very much aware that this is not necessarily something that expands to other art practices. So, mm -hmm. um, at least for me, in that sense, it was very easy to access. What was very hard to do at the time is that there's a very strong um, electronic arts community that developed their work throughout the 90s and the early 2000s that is, let's say, much more established, that has uh, much more spaces for them to show their work and to talk about their work. However, the younger generation, let's say in, in a way my generation, people who started producing probably around 2008, 2010, uh, okay. we were not very much connected to this older generation, let's say. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the community and the ways uh, the network is started to expand, um, I think it was basically through connecting these two points of time, because also it felt at the time that there was a gap between around 2005 and 2010 that I uh, that it was very hard for me to feel. It was very hard for me to find people who were actively producing during that period of time. Eventually, I came across uh, the practitioners and researchers who were very active in that uh, in that part of the time. But I think mm -hmm. probably that was one of the uh, harder let's say the uh, areas to cover and uh, and then again you know this um let's say um space where the artists that were producing from 2010 onwards not all of them or not most of them actually had studied in an arts uh, art school so that was also mm -hmm. something interesting because the people who were producing during the 90s and the early 2000s most of them uh, had been part of uh, you know 
uh, an art institution or an art uh, school that provided, let's say, a platform for them to develop. However, mm -hmm. for the younger generation, most of them were uh, either engineers or programmers or mm -hmm. uh, architects, designers who came from a very different area and then also who di didn't necessarily understood the art circuit in itself. So I think mm -hmm. that's also something that was very interesting to, uh, to, to realize at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, she six years seem um, a short span of time, but um, as you know and I know, um, you know, it's six years is not that much in the world of digital culture. Um, in your experience as lecturer and educator, have you noticed any shifts in terms of interest and approach to digital culture from the younger generations? I think, yes, uh, especially probably the past couple of years have been very interesting for me to uh, to research in terms of what's going on with the younger generations, because uh, for me, it was always very simple to, you know, especially for the um, the first year of art school, uh, where I have like a couple of classes there. Um, most of the students were very interested in things like glitch, for instance. Uh, for mm -hmm. them, it was something that at the time around 2018 was, uh, you know, very shiny and very new and very, you know, very, very, in a way, very close to what they wanted to produce. However, mm -hmm. I would say that from mid-2019 onwards, uh, that was not necessarily the case. There was a closer approach to think about the politics of social media, which I think right. is very, very interesting. And of mm -hmm. course, it's very close to, you know, whatever is happening in the world at the moment, because there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that come across, you know, mass media uh, that you start uh, questioning and wondering about, you know, what happens when we are actually using uh, these social media platforms and who is controlling them and who is filtering the information. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would say that that is a very strong shift that I've realized. And of course, also something that has uh, been very, very present and very constant is uh, the notion of uh, tactical media in the use of uh, especially social media platforms, but, you know, in terms of uh, uncovering or talking about things that tend to be very uncomfortable for, for Mexican society, such as gender mm -hmm. violence. And um, and I think that that's definitely something that they have uh, adapted to their own practices and work. And that mm -hmm. is very, very clear in the younger generations in terms of what they are producing. And maybe not necessarily in a sense that is uh, close to aesthetics and their approach to visual culture rather than, you know, actually approaching to a, a discourse or a context that um, mm -hmm. shows in, in, in their work, even if it yes. doesn't look similar. Yeah, maybe, um, yeah, I have a feeling that w what you say is that sometimes uh, these, you know, these young students um, may be interested in social media and digital platforms in a critical way, uh, but, you know, they, 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 they keep that approach, but they don't necessarily make works about um, Facebook or Instagram or or maybe they don't make um, works that are uh, you know 100% um, digital um, so for example I suppose they may I don't know paint uh, they may 
make sculptures, uh, but they keep uh, that critical approach towards um, towards uh, corporate um, digital platforms. From one to ten, how did they? How 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 did I take it right? I think ten. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely. And uh, and I think it's also interesting because I lecture at the BA in digital arts, so it's not. Yeah, the, that's also something that w- that it's interesting to you know to consider mm-hmm. that within the art school that I uh, lecture, there's two BAs. One is. Uh, uh, visual arts and the other well, the other one is digital arts and I've always mm. thought that that is just crazy and doesn't make sense but uh, but you know yeah. it's also interesting to realize that even though these younger students are choosing to to go for digital arts instead of visual arts they are still considering in a very critical way digital yeah. tools and using mm. uh, other sorts of tools that we might say that are closer to the visual arts VA. However, the discourse is the one that uh, that prevails and uh, that keeps, you know, growing strong in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know you just started uh, a series of artistic residencies through a project with artist Ricardo Sierra by the name Unidad de Conciencias Colectivas Terrestres or Terrestrial Collective Consciousness Unit for our English speakers. Can you share more details about this project and how does it collocate within your research as curator? Yes, of course. Uh, well, the Unidad de Conciencias Colectivas Terrestres is definitely something that uh, that really moves me at, at the moment and that I'm very excited about because uh, this is a project that started in 2020 and Ricardo and myself were, you know, talking a lot about how are we moving forward after this period of time, you know, through through the mm-hmm. consequences of the pandemic uh, and, what, and what that means for society and for uh, politics and economy. And, um, and we were thinking a lot about, you know, how can we create a speculative narrative that helps build new ideas or other ideas or help create other possibilities, especially for cultural practitioners that at least in Mexico, we've seen um, from 2020 until now, a very strong uh, sense of uh, despair. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, budgets that had be, that had been cut. There's a lot of, uh, you know, this feeling that arts and culture are not needed within a context such as the one that we're living. And, uh, and, and that is, well, on one hand, of course, very sad, but, but also something that is not necessarily true. So we wanted to, to pinpoint on this idea of how can we, from within uh, this artistic pr- production, but then also from speculative narratives, build a sense of community through different mm-hmm. uh, cultural practitioners. So the first thing that we have launched is uh, this series of residencies that actually started this week. So it's very, oh. very new. <laughs> um, and uh, what, we, what we've what we done is that we partner up with Tajo Taller, which is a production atelier for um, artists. And, um, and they opened up their, their space, their workshop for very emerging artists to just, you know, go and explore uh, different notions of the topics that we have 
try to unfold from within the Unidad de Conciencias Colectivas Terrestres, which in this sense, we have six uh, key areas that we consider that are interesting to talk about, which are uh, tactical poetics, uh, mm -hmm. radical collectiveness, adversarial systems, uh, cognitive and spatial hybridations, Uh, decentralization of attention and reconnection with non-human intelligences. So uh, what we're trying to build there is to give a space, give time and give resources to very young artists that range from 16 years old to 25 years old uh, to build from within these notions and create something to, you know, to share Uh, with a broader audience. Of course, you know, most of these processes are being held in a hybrid process from, you know, ranging for a little bit of hand-on-hand uh, -hand work, like actually going to the atelier and producing things. Of course, due to mm -hmm. the current circumstances, that is being kept, you know, at the, at the minimum. But also, you know, trying to share their processes uh, through our Instagram page and uh, through our website which we think is going to be the stronger part of the of the project, even though the results of their residency uh, might actually be uh, objects or um, installations mm -hmm. built from these, um, yeah, from within this collaboration. So we're very excited. We still don't know what we're going to get, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> these first two residents that are uh, Winnet Nava and Silvia Castellan, uh, they are fantastic artists and um And they're very excited. So we're also very excited. <laughs> we'll keep on sharing what we what we see and what we uncover by the end of this week. So, so yeah, keep tuned for that.
as above, so as below, my friends, as above, so as below. The world's a world without its end, as above, so as below. As above, so as below, my friends, as above, so as below. The world's a world without its end, as above, so as As promised, uh, we have the experimental Avant Folk by artists Ellen Sondheim and Azure Carter from their latest excellent album, Plague Song. This was played outside, outdoors. It must have been pretty cold at the time in Providence in the USA. And the song is called As Above, So, Oh, As Below. I'm pleased by this album uh, from Bandcamp or any other reputable online stores for music because uh, it's an excellent album and it really reflects the kind of uh, in-betweenness and also the obvious kind of Covid 
context and consciousness of these times. Next, we have further fields Ruth Catslow reading to us her Ford for the Disco Manifesto by Stacco Troncoso and Anne Marie Uchatel. If I Only Had a Heart, The Disco Manifesto, is the first in a trilogy of publications about value sovereignty, care work, commons and distributed cooperative organisations written by Stacco Troncoso and Anne-Marie Utretel, a great radical friends from the Disco Co-op. The Manifesto is a deep dive into the world of distributed cooperative organisations. It's a lively read, explaining how discos are peer-to-peer commons, cooperative, feminist economic alternative to decentralised autonomous organisations, or DAOs. The Disco Manifesto also includes some background on topics like blockchain, AI, the commons, feminism, cooperatives, cyberpunk, and much more. So I was honoured to be invited to write the foreword. If I can't dance... The Disco Manifesto induces a song in the heart and a skip in the step to those who, like me, yearn to see a varied collective of self-organised people empowered through more distributed forms of governance. The Disco's cousins, the decentralised autonomous organisations, promise to allow people to exchange economic value, to pool resources and form joint ventures without control from the centre in ways that were impossible before blockchains. To agree on how risks and rewards should be distributed and to enjoy the benefits or otherwise of the shared activity in the future. However, the core concepts of DAOs and crypto economic mechanism design, incentives, penalties and secrecy are not a natural starting point for most people forming a new venture together. Neither, funnily enough, is money. According to Eleanor Ostrom, Institutions are what shape economics, and in turn, political and social change. The Nobel Prize-winning economist believed that rules and patterns of human interactions and their co-production of value were the source of economic flows. She also asserted the need for economics to use qualitative data to understand behaviour, not just maths. By reframing the question from how can DAOs or blockchains help us to why do we need open distributed cooperatives and how do we get them? Discos throw open the door and invite whole new tribes to join together with crypto economists on the dance floor of planetary scale cooperation to co-create new moves and movements for working people and to form common calls of care and value. So what are discos and why do we need them? Let's take this one track at a time. Discos are an approach to forming distributed open cooperatives. Why cooperatives? Because we need to inject democracy into our economic systems and politics and society in turn. Funded by direct member investment rather than investment from third party shareholders, 
cooperative members decide on the values of the enterprise which don't necessarily need to be about the maximisation of profits. Cooperatives succeed when values are aligned around communal benefit, to pooling resources and a shared desire to avoid anti-competitive or extractive behaviour. Cooperatives offer a way for people to be rewarded for their labour while committing to shared social values. Why open cooperativism? Well, because we need to expand on our economics and accounting to include care for living systems. Open cooperatives apply the logic of feminist economists like Marilyn Waring to account for the care work vital to human prosperity and survival. They also acknowledge the value of intersectional approaches currently ignored through the misleading narratives of our harmful economic systems. The huge cost to social and environmental justice of these systems are only now starting to be more widely acknowledged. Why DAOs? Why distributed? To maximise radical and emancipatory cooperation across national borders, on and off chain, while operating within the laws locally, at least until we can change them. The promise of all DAOs is the development of interoperable, open source legal contracts with a near zero cost of organisation creation. This is about both cost efficiencies and an invitation to imagine, design and build the organisations we need from the ground up, free at first from judicial constraints. These autonomous, ownerless organisations or institutions will each enable a pattern of interaction between its members. What is special about DISCOs, though, is their emphasis on lived experience, care and relations, and the uses and limits of trustless and, air quotes, intelligent machines. We need to find ways to embrace not only technical solutions, but also people who have experience in community organising and methods that foster trust, negotiate hierarchies and embrace difference. Because there is no magic app for platform cooperativism, and there never will be. As Rachel Dwyer wrote in Blockchain Just Isn't As Radical As You Want It To Be in 2018. Disco's attention on local conditions and the corporeal bodies of those involved in the new joint ventures is a crucial injection for the otherwise abstract and dangerously necrotic mechanisms for interacting with ledgers that pervade the current DAO sphere. It encourages whole body systems checks in which money flows are just one part of the living system in constant flux, in need of constant renewal. It discourages us from the quest for the perfect finished mechanism design and we turn our attention and intentions back to our lives together and the next collaboration challenge. The famous anarcho-feminist Emma Goldman said, if I can't dance it's not my revolution. And we all know that the best dance floors are alive with a riot of new moves that just arrived from some foreign land that we want to adopt and coordinate with. In our next podcast, I will be interviewing Stacco and Anne-Marie about Groove is in the Heart, the disco elements. This is the second in the series that sets out how discos actually work. 
They will talk about their friendly and carefully planned approach for organisations that want to create and share value in ways that are cooperative, commons-oriented and rooted in feminist economics. Till then. I'd taken part in online Clarendon Court Residents Association discussions about what to do about our building blocking light to Fortune Street Park. The shadow from Clarendon Court had turned the parts of the park nearest to us into a mud bath. We bought our flats off plan on the basis of the views we'd have of trees and greenery. The foliage subsequently died from lack of sunlight and the choking dust that was thrown up as our building was constructed by Taylor Wimpy. Clarendon Court was much taller than the police section house it replaced and there was no longer any afternoon sunlight in the park from September to March. We decided to commission the young design team, Sazur and Jacobson, to create an artwork that would humiliate any low net worth scumbag who approached Clarendon Court, while simultaneously blocking our view of the mud bath. The piece used facial recognition technology to identify those who weren't making a substantial financial contribution to society. Computers then searched online for information about them. Algorithms were used to put together a package of embarrassing facts about anyone who appeared to fall short of the wealth ideals Clarendon Court residents had attained. These were displayed on a two-sided electronic screen we directed on the western boundary of the park. I could see some terrible mugshots of myself on the west-facing screen. They were chosen because they'd appeared on social media accompanied by text such as the morning after the night before. I carefully curated the photos I placed of myself online. All those I could see on our live art screen came from the pages of people I knew, not my own. The billboard revealed that my cryptocurrency investments had gone belly up, that I was now heavily in debt and headed for a bankruptcy judgement. The screen also mocked me for investing in Clarendon Court. With the turbulence around Brexit, the value of my heavily mortgaged luxury apartment had plummeted. At least the name I was identified by was an alias. My buy-to-leave investment wasn't even in the ancient heart of the City of London, as those who'd sold it to me had promised. It actually lay in the ward of Cripplegate without, beyond the original city wall. It was just inside the local authority's branded cultural mile, but that stopped halfway across the street I faced, since the other side of Golden Lane belonged to Islington. I'd been ripped off and I knew there was only one way to reclaim the billion dollars I'd lost, by taking human lives. I was inspired to do this by Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter who'd made news headlines around the world in 2017. It wasn't a coincidence that we both had degrees in business administration. Paddock was perhaps the greatest mass killer of the 21st century but I would surpass him by claiming more victims from the office workers taking their lunch break in Fortune Street Park. In 2014, the UK Treasury put a price tag on the average murder. The social costs added up to more than £1 million. Economically, murder blew £530,000 out of our material world, including lost output. £174,000 was the direct cost to the National Health Service, Police and Criminal Justice Agencies. This meant an average murder panned out at 1,778,000 in losses. Taking inflation into account and also the fact that costs are higher in London than elsewhere in the country, and going for a low-end ballpark figure, 
Each of those I shot dead in Fortune Street Park would deprive the British economy of several million pounds. However, a mass shooting like Paddock's, which claimed 58 victims, has even higher costs per casualty than a single murder, so I didn't need my kill tally to even reach three figures to recoup the billion I'd lost. By equaling Paddock's score, I balanced the books, although I think I took out a few more people than he managed. Paddock was one of my heroes, so I'd filled my flat with the same weapons and ammunition he'd assembled for his Las Vegas Massacre. These included four DDM-4 assault rifles, three FN-15 rifles, one AR-15 assault rifle with forward front grip, one .308 caliber AR-10 battle rifle and one AK-47, plus a large quantity of ammunition in special magazines with up to 75 rounds in each. I had bipods to rest the rifles on and high-tech telescopic sights. And of course my weapons were fitted with bump fire stocks. On a sunny summer day at lunchtime, Fortune Street Park is packed with office workers eating food bought from stalls on neighbouring Whitecross Street. There is barely room to move. Before I started to shoot from my window overlooking the park, I made some handwritten calculations about where to aim in order to maximise the death toll. Killing the Muppets in the park was like shooting fish in a barrel. I took them out like turkeys on a meat factory production line at Christmas. People were such idiots. Many of them lay flat on the ground in a bid to escape the leaden death spewed by my guns. Others tried to run away and I laughed as I saw claret stain the white shirts of those I'd hit. They made weird twitching movements like spastics before they died. I can hear police helicopters overhead now. And there must be cops inside Clarendon Court already too. My name doesn't matter. I have five different passports and many other types of fake ID. I hope the authorities never identify me. I am a denizen of our financialized world. I am going to blow myself up. When I do this, I want to take a big chunk of the top of the building and a few cops with me. There is no life within. I want to die happily knowing I've recouped my dollar losses in pounds of flesh. Debt should be collected and once I've destroyed the top floors of Clarendon Court, what's owed to me will be paid in full. Yes, that was Stuart Holmes' Denizen of the Dead, published by... Cripplegate Books. That was kind of a, an extract from it, and I mix some sounds in the background. I would also like to mention another book that I've just read of his called She's My Witch, which is really worth getting, which is a dark romance with an incendiary conclusion written to reflect today's social media world and a resurgent interest in the occult and kink. The next track after this will be by Aksak Mabul, which is an excellent band, and the song is called Age Root Bra. I will also, after this, after that track, be interviewing Kate Southworth about her work with art, technology, and witchcraft. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
Hi Kate, what convinced you to make the shift away from making art with technology as a medium to what you're doing now? Yes, yeah, so I made Net Art with the late Patrick Simon. So Patrick and I were worked together for a number of years and we were also married. So our everyday lives were really intertwined. Um, and he tragically died um, in 2011. But when we were making Net artwork, for various reasons, partly spending quite a lot of time online, um, being very aware of the, the politics of the distributed network, and the rationalisation that was going on. I think that it was very intuitive, but we started to feel that there was an impoverishment in life online, that there was something really, really missing. And although we couldn't quite work, what, work out what it was, we intuitively began just making things in the everyday um, that over time became rituals and spells on your site you have a section titled ritual and spells with documentation for rituals you've initiated and co-initiated through the years there are many to view and they include enticing titles such as fertile darkness samane or samhain ritual uh in bulk ritual uh 
sacrosanct diet, 48 summers, 64 telepathic moments, thunder arousing, and uh, these spread through different kind of years, like uh, from now to 2014 and 13. And uh, also, a, yeah, and there are a few others which also include a ritual which was devised by yourself and Patrick Simons, as you discussed, when you were artist, the artist duo Glorious Ninth from 2006, which also involved Ruth and myself as participants. This one was called November, marking the end of summer, where it familiarises uh, the soul of the common darkness of winter. Could you tell us what the ritual and spells, what does that mean to you as an individual and as an artist? Yeah, so I've, I've been working with rituals and spells in my life and making them as part of my artwork for almost 20 years. So for me, they exist and they operate on on very, very many levels that interweave with each other. And I think like psychological, physical, spiritual, sexual, sensorial, I think they can be political, ethical, and aesthetic. And I think that, that they operate on all those levels. I think that's why I find them so compelling a form to work with. And I think that they kind of make manifest some of the dynamics within um, an individual psyche or soul and the dynamics that can emerge between psyches, you know, between different people's psyches or souls. So between an individual, a group, a place, but also then the earth and the sea and and the cosmos. And I think that they're to do with transformation. I think they're to do with shifting from one thing to another. And they can also be based around the transformations of the calendar year. And I think they can be rituals. Historically, calendric rituals have been and now are a way for groups of people to observe and share in the cyclical transformations from darkness to light to brightness and dimness that happens throughout the year. I also think that rituals that they can sometimes relate to the sacred. Well, I don't mean that in a religious way. I think those aspects of living and dying that are often within the everyday, but which can they connect to, to the flow of something bigger than us. Yeah, so uh, there's, a, uh, there's a connection beyond the self and also a connection to, to something that kind of... Or do you feel that there's agency where the stuff that you're engaged with kind of offers something a little bit more elemental? Yeah, so I think def- definitely it's to do with... It's elemental. It's something about trying to find ways of making and being with other people that are not based on... on capitalist relations uh, that are not rationalised, um, although some of these rituals and spells have been in traditional contemporary artwork contexts, I think they emerge from community, really. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I've seen some of these works in, uh, like in stalls, uh, like market stalls and gallery contexts, and they just feel more like, not not on the edge, but they just feel like playful infiltrations into different areas where where you can connect with people in a way that kind of 
I don't know, it feels quite playful. Yeah, and I think I, I made, well, it was a ritual and a spell for an exhibition where the the whole point was just to sit on the edges of the exhibition. So I didn't have anything installed. I was just there with one of my daughters, actually, and we I'd made beads, which I very often do, made out of paper and herbs, um, and I had them in a box, and we'd put incense, frankincense, and all sorts of different resins uh, around the building. So I was just asking people if they would like a bead and kind of wove a a story around the time of the year. And it was just sitting on the edges of the exhibition. And and what I really like about working this way is the, the, the response from people, because sometimes they're absolutely horrified or scared, or they just can't comprehend what I'm talking to them about. And then other people will so into the space that I'm trying to make, which is, you know, just the imaginal, that they get really into it. And we can end up having quite intimate conversations. And I find that a really, really interesting way of working. So I've been looking at your drawings, which of course involve a different type of attention. Some of the names give small clues to their conceptual and artistic focus uh, that include uh, revelation, intensities, joining and subduing. And these are kinds of uh, on-square drawings and possess particular processes. Do you want to expand on how you've made these drawings and and what their contexts are? Yeah, of course. Um, So, yeah, the work that I've been making the last couple of years, I think that I am using a square format. And the drawings that you're talking about, they're made on graph paper. So that's even more little squares. And obviously with graph paper, the, the squares are spread across evenly across the surface of the paper. And then on top of that, I'm drawing a net-like form. And then over the top of the net, I'm drawing into the, the, the net, or yeah, drawing in relation to the net. Consciously, I am, in the, this work, I am trying to explore the idea of, of a net or a symbol, I suppose, um, and moving away from a format that has a, a, a single focus. I'm trying to think what a non-hierarchical image might look like, a non-centralised image, although when I look at the drawings, they do all seem to still have something that coalesces through presence or absence in the centre, but that's not on purpose. And what I am thinking about, and this is, I think, important to all the work, is to do with how one thing interacts with another, what that relation is, and really, really trying to think what what is it about capitalist relations that are so abhorrent. So I think it's one thing interacting or engaging with another through trying to control it or have mastery over it or reject it. And and I'm trying to then think, well, what other kind of relations are there where, and I, and I come to this idea of mutual, where things can transform, they can change, but not by one thing imposing on another, by, but by mutual um, shifts. That's the conscious intention. And then obviously there'll be a whole heap of unconscious stuff that comes through. Uh, the formalism that comes out of it seems to come out of the ritual of making it. 
that I find that quite interesting because when you make work, like I've been making work myself, and uh, there's a kind of intuitive relationship with the materials that make you connect the materials in such a way you're almost entranced. And uh, I was wondering if little bits of that in the work and in these drawings as well. Oh, well, I hope there is. I mean, that I think... Again, I've only started using the word sacred quite recently, so it might not be the right word, but it 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 seems to hold something about um, uh, the way we do things for me. So I think making those drawings is there's definitely a similarity. It can't they come from a similar place as the rituals and the spells? I think it is a journey into the psyche and also across psyches. So I do think telepathy may or may not be the right word, but this I do think we connect on this very strange level across. And um, and that's what I mean meant before about getting into the flow of things. I think it's energy probably. But I do think um, this idea of doing things with respect for what we're doing and respect for the materials we're using, respect for the um, time that we're working with, all of those things, I think, are part of ritual and the ritual of making. I don't know if you've read The Reenchantment of Art by Susie Gablick, and it was critiquing, in a way, it's like Lucy Lippard as well, when they were trying to rediscover uh, a kind of connection beyond the patriarchal dominance over art. And I think that, in a sense, the reenchantment of art is when you rediscover something that has not been polluted by the usual conditions uh, the kind of context has now shifted away from uh, the absolute of digital into something that's more material. And I think that materiality is uh, a really interesting place to be because there's a kind of reconnection to something that didn't appear in in the kind of past experiences of net art that, or, or internet art or it just... Or even now, a lot of the work doesn't quite give uh, the kinds of essence of what maybe the, the work you've been exploring has been uh, doing. I do think net art, I think I've always had a slightly different take on net art to quite a lot of people at the time. And I never quite fitted with that group of people entirely. And I think it's... Because I was really, really interested in again in the in in the the patterns, the 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 relationships, the logic of what's going on in the distributed network as an organisational form, um, and I, that continues for me to be one of the main drivers in my of what I'm interested in and I, I I I align with lots of caveats and whatnot. I think distributed network is really aligned with aspects of contemporary capitalism. I think the logic is very, very similar. In terms of trying to find ways to resist capitalism, to find alternatives, I think that's what lots and lots of people are doing now. And I think we're 
going searching anywhere at the moment for things to help us imagine what something else might be like. Okay. So I've got another question, mm-hmm. and uh, this is about your painting. And so, uh, and the names of these works include Recognizing Soul, Mapping Luna, Mapping Soul, Mapping the Mutual, Mapping the Elements, Mapping the Distance. They're also square, like the, uh, like the drawings are, and involve a kind of uh, visual mapping. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, They're definitely about mapping. And again, they are about mapping relations between things. I think they're exploring what, in in attempting to try and find something that isn't rooted in capitalism, I'm looking at, okay, so what does a hierarchical pattern or hierarchical set of relations, what does that actually look like? What does a decentralised pattern or set of relations look like um so i'm doing that and also um the use of the words uh, names luna and soul um i have been looking at um alchemy and i find that a very 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 interesting area um because i think it's or aspects of it are very much about transformation within the psyche and i think there is Although in a strange way, and not one I'd take wholesale, I think there is an exploration of the feminine within that. It needs to be treated with caution, I think, but it's just it's worth an uh, worth looking at. I've seen some of the videos, and especially the last one. Do you want to explain what the last ritual was that you did? Yeah, is that fertile fertile darkness? Yeah, fertile darkness was so part of the way that I work is working with fragments um, or elements where one piece of work might consist of paintings, ritual, spell, um, and they all together as a cluster they make the piece of work. So there were paintings and then this ritual that was enacted in front of uh, a group of people who were at the exhibition. And I drew on the November ritual that Patrick and I had made and which you and Ruth um, were part of. Um, and I, I used the same idea. So it was very much about welcoming the winter. Guests, that, or that, sorry, the participants were invited to find texts or to talk about darkness, death, decay, all thing, the aspects associated with the onset of winter. And the format was very much the same as the one, the November piece, where each person was asked to speak and listen at the same time. And when you weren't speaking, invite, people were invited to eat raw garlic, which we did with the one that you and Ruth did. And then Patrick had grown, for the one we did with you and Ruth, Patrick had grown the garlic. So growing things, herbs and plants, very often has a part in the rituals that I make. And so the the one um, fertile darkness, we all spoke at the same time um, with gaps, and it, it just produces this kind of rhythm of us all speaking at the same time. And so, the people that are involved with this, how did what impression did you think they've got from uh, from doing it themselves? 
or collectively? I think certainly from the conversations that I had with them and they're people who work with me anyway with uh, working with the calendric transformations throughout the year so they're quite sensitized and sensitive to the way that these things can work they found the experience of of doing that ritual very powerful and interestingly the the audience there were a few skeptics in there who actually they said to me later really really dreading having to listen to it because they thought it'd be really pretentious and just full of itself but they also found that something happened in the space because we were all all the performers all the people participating we were doing it so genuinely it wasn't like a performance where we were acting. We were really trying to do something that we knew would work. Yeah. And so so, uh, so what do you feel worked from that occasion, you know, that, that event? What, what was actually working? Well, I think that so it was, it was to do with getting ready for the onset of winter. So the days shortening, the nights getting longer, vegetation dying back. And because we live where we live here in Cornwall, they're not the bright lights to distract us during the winter. And it can be quite hardcore in the winter. It can be amazing, but it can be quite hardcore. But Obviously, at the same time, it's working on the level of preparing for death. And that can be a literal death. But usually, and in this way, it's meant symbolically that before any major transformation can take place, there's a, it helps to let go of things that are no longer needed. And that kind of symbolic death is in there as well. And then from that, lots of new things can grow within the darkness. And the darkness can also refer to the womb. It's a very, very positive place as well, Um, but often a place that we're very afraid of. And by acclimatizing ourselves to darkness, to appreciating what can be found in the darkness, I believe. And so I think the people who participated actually um, some kind of change within each of us uh, emerges. Stars 
pleased with himself Everyone squeaks gently Everyone is pleased with himself Everyone squeaks gently And comforts in a friendly smell Where each can dream the dreams that only beating hearts desire They briefly touch Then pass on Drifting between a soft and or two Pausing momentarily to dot their tongues at the stars That was Daniel Dax, one of my favourite musicians in 1982, and the song is called Everyone Squeaks Gently. All I have to say now is thank you very much to all those that have made the effort to listen to this podcast, Furtherfield's News from Where We Are, the Radical Friendship Series. We'll let you know when the next one is on. And uh, thank you very much.